Welcome to the Beacon Broadcast from Beacon Baptist Church in Burlington, North Carolina, featuring expositional Bible teaching by Pastor Greg Barkman. If you'd like to correspond with the Beacon Broadcast, or if you wish to support this radio ministry, write to The Beacon Broadcast, Post Office Box 159, Alamance, North Carolina, 27201, or find us on the web at beaconbaptist.com beaconbaptist.com The Beacon Broadcast is supported in part by the gifts of faithful listeners. Now with today's message from God's Word, here is Greg Barkman. Well, we have launched into John chapter 17 on the last couple of broadcasts that wonderful chapter that contains what we call Christ's high priestly prayer, where he is interceding for himself, first of all, for his apostles, secondly, and for all of his people, thirdly. And the prayer divides into those three parts rather conspicuously. We see Christ praying for himself in verses 1 through 5, for his apostles in verses 6 through 19, and for all his people in verses 20 through 26. Thus far, we have been looking at the first five verses where Christ is praying for himself, and we have noted that twice in this section he asks the Father to glorify him. First of all, in verse 1, glorify thy Son, and secondly, in verse 5, glorify thou me, which, of course, is the Son as well. But as we look at these carefully, we realize that the first petition to glorify thy son is with the cross in view. Christ's crucifixion, Christ's death upon the cross is actually a manifestation of glory. It it adds to his glory or it magnifies his glory. And that is something that we probably don't generally consider, but we ought to because that's what Christ says here. Verse 1 Jesus spoke these words, lifted up his eyes to heaven, and said, Father, the hour has come, that's in reference to the cross, glorify your Son, that your Son also may glorify you. And thus it goes on. We'll pause and welcome you to this Sunday, December 10 edition of the Beacon Broadcast. We're grateful for the opportunity of teaching God's Word on this and other stations And we are very grateful for those whose financial support allows us to do this. And I would encourage you to consider a year-end support to the Beacon Broadcast as you conclude your giving for the year 2023. So first of all, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son also may glorify you. Now, we have talked about what it is to glorify God, to glorify Christ, to glorify anyone, actually. It is to praise them, to exalt them, usually verbally, but they can be exalted in other ways, to magnify them, to give honor to them, and then in the case of God, to clothe in majesty and splendor. I suppose that would also be true of, say, an earthly king 
that that would be a way of exalting or glorifying him. But these are ways that we glorify God by praising him. Let's do so faithfully and regularly. By exalting him, that is, continuing to lift him up in our thoughts and in our conversations with others. To magnify him. Magnify means to make larger. You have a magnifying glass or telescope or something else that that will enlarge the image that you are looking at, and that is what it means to magnify. And so we are to magnify God. We are to magnify Jesus Christ. We are to make him larger in our thinking and to help others to make him larger in their thinking. That's what it means to magnify him, to give honor to him, the honor that is due unto him. We give him no more honor than what is due. We can't give him as much honor as is actually due, but let us try to do so. Let us make this an important aspect of our relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ to give honor to him as often as we possibly can. I I shudder when I see things that even in a rather, what should I say, a subtle and indirect way, dishonor the Lord. I find myself getting uh, jokes on on the internet. I didn't, I didn't subscribe to them. I didn't request them, but they come to me. It's funny, they came for a while, then they disappeared for a while, then they showed up again. And most of the time, it, it's, it, they're very clean jokes. They, they are. There's nothing, nothing sexy, nothing ribald about them. It's, in fact, it's advertised as good, clean humor. But I saw one come up the other day that related to Jesus Christ. What did Jesus Christ eat for breakfast or something like that? I don't even remember. I did not open that one. I deleted it as quickly as I could. It just... It bothers me to hear people even talking about Christ in such a, what should I say, such a humanizing way. Obviously, he was human. Obviously, he ate breakfast. But to treat him like he's just like somebody else, like everybody else, to even make make jokes that are clean but nevertheless tend to do the opposite of magnifying him. They tend to diminish him. I, I don't think that's what a Christian ought to be doing. We are to magnify him. We are to give honor to him. We are to clothe him in our minds in majesty and splendor. For that indeed is what is due unto him. We can't do that too much. We can't do that enough. We're not capable of doing it as much as it ought to be done, but let us try. And so the first petition is that the Father, glorify the Son. But isn't it interesting, even in glorifying the Son with the cross in view, which I hope, without going back to that again, you have been helped by thinking through what we said about that previously on the broadcast last week and the week before, how the cross of Christ glorifies, magnifies, gives majesty and honor to the Son. But notice that Christ, in turn, says he will magnify the Father as the Father magnifies him. As the Father magnifies the Son on the cross, which magnifies his love and his humility and his obedience, his perfect obedience to the Father and other things that we did not mention, but those are the things we did mention. 
But as the Father magnifies the Son on the cross by displaying these conspicuous attributes about him, which we need to be aware of and to to thank him and magnify and to exalt him and praise him for, and to incorporate those into our own lives, we need to demonstrate more love. We need to demonstrate more humility. We need to demonstrate more obedience, more perfect obedience. The Son is a wonderful example to us in these things. And those things reach their climax, we might say, when Christ was willing to submit himself to the cross. But notice what I'm getting to here in verse 1, that the purpose for Christ requesting that the Father glorify him is so that he in turn can glorify the Father. Did you catch that? Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that your Son also may glorify you. Now, there's a lot about the relationship between the Father and the Son that we don't understand and can't understand, at least in this life, and perhaps we'll understand, no doubt we'll understand better when we get to heaven. Will we understand it completely and perfectly? Probably never, because even sanctified human minds are never going to rise to the level of understanding the infinite God, whose thoughts are so far above our thoughts, whose ways are so far above our ways. But nevertheless, one of the things we see in the relationship between the Father and the Son is how that they bring honor and glory to each other. The Father honors the Son, and in turn, the Son honors the Father. Fill in any other word that we've used here at the same place. The Father glorifies the Son. The Son glorifies the Father. The Father exalts the Son. The Son exalts the Father. And here's what I'm getting at. There's a lot of things that I could talk about in that particular um, concept. But here's what I'm getting at. If the Father's or if the Son's desire to be glorified was in turn to bring glory to the Father, then when God does anything to exalt us, uh, to, to, to praise, to honor us, maybe honor is a better way of saying it, to honor us as he will from time to time, exalting his children, giving them positions of influence and, and authority that they did not have. But if the Father does that, and if we desire that in a wholesome, God-honoring way, and God, and God grants that desire, what are we to do with it? Do we do that to bring honor and glory to ourselves and to bask in that? Wow, look at me. I now have this position of honor. I have this position of authority. I have this position of influence that other people don't have. Look at me. Look at me. Look at me. No. If we view it that way, then we shouldn't be surprised if God takes it away from us. He may not. He has his own purposes for what he does. He always has good reasons for everything he does, and so I'm not saying that he'll automatically do that. He may let us go on in our carnality and use that in some way for his own purposes and his own glory, but it sure won't, won't be for our good if we use it in that way. We should view anything like that in the sense that God has given this to me so that I can more greatly magnify and honor him. I have this place of influence to magnify God. I have this place of honor in order to point people's attentions to the honor that belongs to God. 
And we see that in the Son, perfect, sinless Son, who deserves all honor and glory. But what does he do with it? He says, Father, glorify the Son, that the Son may glorify you. That's an important lesson for us as well. But as we have seen, the first petition to glorify the Son is with the cross in view. The second position to glorify the Son is with the crown in view, his return to the throne. Father, verse 5, O Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. But we also need to notice in this section the reasons that support Christ's two petitions for the Father to glorify him. Number one, to glorify him on the cross so that those attributes that are so wonderfully and, and, and uh, majestically displayed upon the cross come into sharper focus. And on the other hand, to glorify him on the throne so that his glory and majesty and right to rule are magnified on the throne as he's restored to his original glory. And as he, you may recall my talking about taking his human body, which he did not have in his original glory, taking that to the throne with him, his glorified body, now receiving the same honor and glory that, his, that he had in his pre-incarnate glory when he existed only as a spirit, and now he exists as a man eternally in a glorified body. That's, that's so mysterious. So, so many things about Christ are mysterious. So many things about God are mysterious. We, we talk about God, but we keep bumping into mystery that we cannot penetrate. At least I can't, and I doubt that anyone else can either, except God himself. But what are the reasons to support this position? petition? Remember, the petitions are glorify thy son on the cross. The hour has come. Glorify thy son, that thy son may glorify thee. And the second one, glorify thou me with the glory which I had with you before the world was, with the crown, the throne in view. So what are the reasons that support these petitions? Well, the first one we've already seen is that the divinely appointed time has come. You see, when we pray, and this is exemplified in Christ's prayer, and it's exemplified in many other prayers in the Bible, when we pray, when we ask the Father to do something, we ought to have a divinely given reason why we're asking for that particular request. And in this case, Jesus says, glorify me on the cross because the time has come for that to happen. Christ, of course, who knows the timetable perfectly, in, his, in the divinity of his two natures, recognizes the time has come for this to take place. He didn't pray for this to take place three years earlier when he began his earthly ministry. He did not at that time say, Now, Father, glorify me, either on the cross or with the crown in view, glorify me with the glory which I had with you before the world began. He didn't make those petitions at the beginning of his earthly ministry because the time was not right. That was the wrong time. Petitions that are, that are appropriate and God-honoring petitions, nevertheless, 
were not made at an inappropriate time. They are made at the right time. The hour is come. The divinely appointed time has come. And we need to recognize the same principle in our prayers. We must desire in the petitions we make that these petitions, if granted by God, be granted according to his perfect time and recognize that there is such a time. Now, we generally don't know when that time is. Christ did because he was the God-man. He was God. So he knew the timetable perfectly. So he could pray in a way that we can't exactly, in that he could say, the hour has come. This is now the time. I know the time has come, and therefore it's appropriate to make these petitions at this time. At this time, because the time is right, glorify me in these ways. Glorify me upon the cross, and then beyond the cross, glorify me in the ascension and exaltation. We don't know God's timetable, so we defer to him to do these things according to what he knows to be the perfect time, which we do not know. But we should recognize that there is such a time. And we should yield our will to the Father's divinely appointed time. Sometimes we pray, well, for what? Insert almost anything in here. Uh, Father, please, please um, mend my relationship with my spouse. It's very bad at this time, and things are not the way they ought to be, and our marriage is not glorifying you the way that it ought to glorify you. And so I'm praying for the the um, healing of my marriage because I believe that's a God-honoring petition, and indeed I would think so too. Our petitions ought to always be something that we have reason to believe would be a God-honoring petition, and the healing of a Strained marriage is certainly a God-honoring petition. But keep in mind that our sovereign God has a purpose even in the strained relationship in our marriage right now. Even though, and these are mysterious things we don't fully understand, but even though it is more God-honoring for us to have a good marriage than a bad one, or I guess we can say that. It's more God-honoring. In some cases, that may not be. God does all kinds of things with marriages that are not living up to the ideal that we find in Scripture. The husband taking his role of loving leadership with his wife. So many times that Leadership is anything but loving. So many times it is abrasive and even abusive, which is not honoring to God's way. And then sometimes it's turned around the other way. Husbands that, for whatever reason, are unwilling to take God the leadership, particularly in spiritual areas. They just balk at that. They don't think they can do that. They don't try to do that. They don't want to do that for any number of reasons. And so here, here's a husband that's not taking his position as a loving leader in the home. Or here's a wife that's not willing to take her position as a godly, submissive, 
companion and partner in the home. So something isn't right. Something is is contrary to the biblically revealed roles of husband and wife. And that, of course, is causing a strained marriage. What else could it cause? <clears throat> Certainly, it would be a strained, strained marriage for anyone who loves the Lord and desires that their marriage be what God's Word says it ought to be, the picture of Christ in the church and so forth. But I have learned over the years, haven't you, that God so often uses difficult marriage relationships or sometimes other relationships besides marriage, but particularly difficult marriage relationships to sanctify his children, his children who wrestle with, who who chafe under, who who suffer in a less than biblically ordered marriage in those difficulties as they continue to cast themselves upon the Lord and ask for God's help and examine their own heart to see what they may be doing that's contributing to this marriage. It's amazing how people like that can grow in grace and knowledge and develop Christ-like character that would not have been developed any other way. Now, if that's what God is doing with this at this time, and he's not done with that process yet, then we have to be patient in praying, Lord, heal my marriage. Lord, mend my marriage. Lord, restore my marriage. He may plan to do that in the future, but if he's not done with the purpose for which the, 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 the problem in the marriage was, was brought to us, was, was designated for us, then he's not going to answer that prayer the way we would hope and desire until the purpose has been accomplished. Do you understand? That's what I'm saying. And so the first reason that undergirds Christ's petition is that it was the divinely appointed time. Father, he said, opening this prayer, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that your Son also may glorify you. Father, the hour for the cross has come. So in that hour, bring about that eternally appointed event and bring with that the glory that it shall manifest to those who have eyes to see and ears to hear given to them by the Holy Spirit of God so that I in turn might glorify you and I make this petition at this time rather than at the beginning of my earthly ministry three years ago, I make the petition at this time because this is the right time. This is the divinely appointed time. Well, what else? Another reason that supports the petition is not only this is the divinely appointed time, but it is the divinely appointed purpose, namely to glorify the Father. We've already seen that purpose. We'll look at another aspect in a moment in verse 4. But in verse 1, here's the purpose for glorifying me. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son also may glorify you. That reminds me that the Bible says, Paul told us in the First Corinthian epistle, that whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. That's our task. 
That's our assignment as Christians. If God, I'd already talked about this earlier, if God gives us a position of of influence or authority, glorifies us in some way, exalts us in some way, what's the reason for this? Well, it's the reason for everything in life, whether therefore you eat or drink, what mundane activities, or whatever you do, includes all of our activities, do all to the glory of God. Christ understood the reason for his petition. Father, the hour has come, glorify thy Son, that the the Son may glorify you. Christ understood the reason for his petitions. He understood, number one, that the time had come, the divinely appointed time. That's a reason to make this petition. But number two, he understood the purpose, the divinely appointed purpose, that in this, as in every other event in his life, the purpose was for him to glorify God. He came into this world to what? Show us the Father. Reveal the Father. Help us to know and understand the Father. And so, Christ understood that his purpose, even in hanging upon the cross, was to bring glory to the Father. And how did Christ hanging on the cross bring glory to the Father on earth? Well, probably in several ways. Think about how it glorified his power, some of the miracles that took place. That, that supernatural darkness that covered the cross for those three hours so that nobody could even see what was going on on the cross during those three hours. God veiled that from view. But another token of God's power did everybody understand that, or did in seeing it and understanding that, did they benefit from it? No, not everyone did, but some surely did. And the other, other miracles that took place when Christ hung upon the cross. The Father's wisdom was understood. This is the fulfillment of many, many things that the prophets of God have spoken down through the centuries. Things that most believers had trouble understanding. Just look at the the apostles of Christ who couldn't seem to understand that he had to die, no matter how many times he told them. And they had been prophesied by their own prophets in the Old Testament. How about the prophet Isaiah? Who hath believed our report, and to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? For he shall grow up as a tender plant, as a root out of dry ground. There is no form nor comeliness that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our grief and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before her shears is dumb, so he opened not his mouth. Did the prophets of God foretell the death of the promised Messiah Before that death occurred, they certainly did, hundreds of years before. 
Look at Psalm 22 if you want a picture of the crucifixion given to us years before it took place. That, of course, was the prophet David and Isaiah I just quoted. And so a number of Old Testament prophecies clearly revealed the death of Christ upon the cross, but the disciples, the apostles, and others who studied the scriptures still had trouble understanding them. But then what had happened when God's promised Messiah took his place upon the cross and paid the debt of our sins, also promised. The wisdom of God came into view. The word of God fulfilled perfectly came into view. And so forth. I'm running out of time, but yes, the Father was glorified by the Son hanging on the cross. It brought glory and honor to the Father in a unique way that was different from any other way that could have brought him glory in exactly that way. And that's, for, that's what the Son prayed for, that on the cross he might glorify the Father, even as the Father glorified him. Until next week, Greg Barkman saying, Good day. May God give you his eternal peace.